Well, these five weeks in Job are a bit of an introduction to a book. Um, I think we need to take our time and go through the poetry of his lament and the counselor's reaction more slowly to really get it. But I'm hoping that these five weeks are sort of a, uh, an introduction that you'll follow up and, and deal with the book um, yourself. As you note on the study sheet here, our guide, uh, in our five weeks, our first lesson was on God will have his way with the righteous. And that may be a shock to some people, especially those that have been, have been invited to Christ so that Christ will make your life go better. Um, that isn't necessarily um, the outcome of costly discipleship and the Christian life. This is not an invitation for our temporal life to be characterized by peace and prosperity. Um, and Job is the excellent example of that. He truly loved the Lord. He was called blameless and righteous. He feared God and he shunned evil. And God uses him then, uses him, uses him with Satan, brings him up with, uh, with Satan. Have you considered my man Job, who's righteous and blameless, he fears God and he shuns evil? Um, and Satan wants his way with him. And he never knows. Job doesn't really, he's never really explicitly told. We'll talk about this next week. He's never explicitly told that, Job, your sustaining integrity through all of this is just God's greatest pleasure. You are bringing such wonderful witness to the integrity of God's grace in your life. Job doesn't have that. <laughs> he doesn't know that. So he's really living by faith with no, absolutely no worldly reason for continuing to trust in God. No, worth, no earthly, worldly reason. Only God. What looks like bondage to us may be proof of our freedom. I just indicated that. And three, we learn from Job how to comfort those who suffer. Um, we really could have spent more time on that particular issue. But I think we surfaced some good ideas. And uh, we saw how Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and then Elihu are really misguided comforters. Um, they're trying to find the problem. And they're trying to diagnose what Job has done wrong to deserve this. It's outside of their... And I'll comment on that later, too. It's outside of their orthodoxy to understand that God actually could benefit from Job's sustained witness to his righteousness, a righteousness that Job would be the first to admit is based on God and his grace. So today, number four, true piety is honest and bold and centered in God. And... I start here with the idea that on the road to Emmaus and the two disciples walking and they come upon Jesus after the resurrection, I wonder if Job factored in on the conversation. You know, I wonder if Jesus said, well, remember Job and the gospel according to Job and, and Job's witness to, uh, to me when he had no worldly, earthly reason for doing so. You know, he was, he was just like me, just like the Messiah. 
a righteousness that could only be explained by God. And he underwent this cosmic battle with Satan. And he won. He had the experience of hoping against all hope. So uh, let's just use a few passages to illustrate that. In chapter 13, verse 15, we just... I would love to create a reputation here at the Advent that when you go to Webster's class, you need a Bible. You're probably getting tired of me a little teasing like that, but teasing is a sign of affection, remember. In chapter 13, verse 15, Job says at one point, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words. Let my declaration be in your ears. And this is, there's, I think there's three things that go on in Job's dialogue. And the pattern gets repeated. One, he really does, really does speak out against his counselors and resists their kind of wooden, uh, you know, the orthodoxy that says the, the righteous prosper and the wicked are judged. And he just says that's too limiting. That's an imposition on what it means to live for God, and it's too restricted. It doesn't work. And he lashes out at his counselors uh, that in such a way as to sort of singe your eyebrows or your hair. I mean, it's fiery rhetoric. The second thing that I think happens in Job's dialogue is that he desperately wants to make his case to God. He's like an attorney. Um, and I have the evidence. Please, will you give me a hearing? He never puts God on trial. Now, this is a very significant point. God is not on trial. Job is on trial. He's completely clear on who's the judge here and to whom he has to make his case. And so he's crying out to be able to give evidence in support. And before he's done, he'll present that evidence at the end. The third thing that he does is he grows wise. This is the beautiful thing about it. From a theological standpoint, he becomes more and more theological, more and more God-centered. It's like the emotion gets burned off. And what's left is really hard-fought understanding of God. We'll look just briefly at that. But um, if at any point I go blank because I've preached two services, you'll at least have that to go on. So number one, Job is in moral pain. And that can be reflected in so many ways. In the third chapter, uh, I should have put some more verse references on there, when I, but I did this um, yesterday, the, <laughs> the references. In chapter 3, verse 25, he's in moral pain. And God finds the expression of that moral pain actually legitimizing, reasonable to express that you're in moral pain. 
moral pain is a sign that you are alive and and a sign that the universe was not to meant to be this way. The fall and the curse is contrary to the will of God. And so the evidence of that which is broken and twisted and um, and so difficult for us is is that which came about as a result of evil and a result of the fall. And, and God has allowed it and cursed and pre- prevented, uh, presented it to us. Chapter 3 and verse 25, For the thing that I fear has come upon me, what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. You know, I, I find myself going back and forth between the ESV and the NIV. I've had many, many more years in the NIV. I find that I have memorized things without thinking about it in the NIV. Uh, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I find that clear. <laughs> what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. You. You know, we talked at the beginning about God will have his way with the righteous, and I sort of talked about contemplating the worst-case scenario for you. Um, And I don't know, uh, from a counseling perspective, that's a good thing to do or a bad thing to do, but uh, what will test your faith to the limit, and will you be faithful? Can Can you contemplate the scenario in your mind that as as Job says here, what I had feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened. And so he's confronted, confronting his worst case scenario. And it is hanging in there. He's hanging in there. That's really different from selling people kind of on Jesus as you know, making life go better with versus the kind of way of the cross that is laid out for all Christians. And from chapter 3, verse 25, I'd like to move to chapter 7, verse 11. And here again, this is Job in moral pain, expressing himself. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my, rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. Now, I think there's something to be said here for the poetry of lament and being able to take your time to express yourself, to write things out. Uh, I shared this with my psalm group on Monday morning. Uh, We had a very terrible entrance into First Presbyterian Church, San Diego. Uh, over the gay issue. We lost 300 people. There was a great deal of conflict. Uh, There had been a year and a half of sober-minded, clear studies, reasoned discourse, Bible studies, 
and it had come to the point of session voting. It was a kind of catch-22. They couldn't do it without a pastor, but it was the worst possible thing to do with a new pastor. But they voted 26 to 3, a standing rule that precluded practicing gays from being in leadership in the church. Well, that was passed within weeks of my coming, and it just led to a huge commotion. And 300 people left. And Well, all that to say that about nine months after that, I wrote a novel capturing that year and called it The Call. And I found it very therapeutic to kind of write out that year. Um, I mean, I had I had tapes. I, I didn't create anything. I, I was very much just writing what happened, um, trying to make it interesting, composite characters, things like that. Um, but when I was finished with that, it was like the Lord said, you're done. Move on. And I was really able to put it to bed and be done with it and move on. And Job, by expressing himself, by actually taking the time, and that's why musicians and artists and poets are ahead of a lot of us. <laughs> because they've taken the time, they've taken the discipline to artistically get it down, to express it. There's a place for that in the church. Um, a lot of our hymns are written out of that angst. We don't even realize it on Sunday morning when we sing them. But it is the artist, the musician, that has composed this to express the lament, to express how they feel towards God and what the pressures are upon them. And I don't think this is just ancient. I think this is modern. I, I think we kind of um, have a uh, an external facade of pleasantries and nice things, and all that sometimes conceals the the heartache and the pain and the and the bitterness. I'm just making a, a case here for Job as a model for mentoring the lament and showing us how to write that. And he's done it for us. I mean, we can identify with what he says. We can just take what he says. You don't have to be inventive. Uh, some of us should be and can be and are so inclined to do so. But Job provides the words. That's why we really need to know Job. That's why it shouldn't be a hidden book to us. We should be able to identify with what he said. I think he's helped me. I think knowing Job to the little extent that I do, I think it's helped me in terms of dealing with life. Um, Job is in moral pain. Number two, we've probably said enough on that. Job wants to shout guilty, not guilty. Um, he wants to make his case. Um, let's go to chapter nine, <clears throat> turn over the page and go to verse 14. Um, Job wants to be able to present his case to God uh, because God matters so much to him. Now God is the only thing that matters to him. Everything else has been taken away. Verse 14 of chapter 9, How then can I answer him? Choosing my words with him? Though I'm in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser, if I summon him and he answered me, 
I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it's a contest of strength, behold, he's mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. You know, this is this paradox in Job that I know what is righteous and I was blameless. I was I feared God. I shunned evil. He's going to show us at the end all the things that he did do. But who am I to present the case before God? I mean, I am not articulate in this. I can't do that. I can't. I can't present my case. I need his mercy. Um, there's no hint of self-righteousness in this at all. Righteousness combined with the desperate need for the mercy of God. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Maybe one of the most poignant expressions in the whole book. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. I just um, think for a moment with me. I mean, a lot of us have kids. Think for a moment on our transposition of Job and parenting and the lessons learned from his lament and the way we would nurture our children to be able to lament and to express pain. Um, a boyfriend, girlfriend breakup, um, difficult grades, not getting in the school you had hoped for, being dropped from the team. I wonder if if we can find ways of modeling the lament so our children understand as well that this is part of the spiritual life. God's grace and God's concern and God's mercy is connected to these things which the adult may perish the thought but minimize and dismiss and just want our kids to get over quickly. Um, rather than the very serious heartache kind of thing that they really are to our children. And if we would project ourselves back, we know that that's true. Um, great instruction, in a way, Job is, for, for understanding um, that dynamic. Go all the way to chapter 23 and verses 1 through 12 um, on this idea of Job wanting to present his case. Job 23. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him. I'd fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand that he would say to me, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Now this is more hopeful 
as time goes on in this progression of expression, in his piety, it's becoming more hopeful. God will hear me. God will hear me out. Uh, And then verse 10 of 23 But he knows the way that I take, and when he's tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I've kept his way and have not turned aside. I've not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Yeah, I hope my kids say that of me. I hope that the that there's a Job-like quality of integrity in my piety that um, that resonates with Job. Job wants that not guilty. Number three, Job's piety is raw. Um, how could he be true to himself and other in any other way? And I feel we've kind of I've already made this case with Job's counselors, uh, so you might look at that. Uh, later, the last paragraph under number three, the stock answers just before number four. Uh, let me read that just to bring us up. The stock answers and religious platitudes expressed the orthodoxy of the day, but not the will of God. Job's three counselors are spared the pain of truly identifying with their friend because they have convinced themselves that Job's suffering is justly deserved. Their orthodoxy cannot explain how a person who was blameless and upright, a man who feared God and shunned evil, could be subjected to such pain and suffering. But Job is not about to give up or to give in. His confidence in God and his righteousness has not lessened, but deepened. Just to, and I think I've made this point earlier, in the parable of the prodigal son, we usually in our sermons, us preachers, kind of, talk about it in either identification with the prodigal, the lost son, that way, or identification with the elder, self-righteous son. It usually divides on those two. We never contemplate that a brother or sister in Christ could be like the father. And I'd say there's three viable models going on there. You actually can be... We almost feel like that's sacrilegious to make somebody out to be like the father, but I think that's the model. You actually can live a mature, faithful, God-honoring, God-fearing, repenting, confessing, emboldening Christian life. You can live that life and you can actually be like the father in that parable. That first came to me, and I think I explained this, maybe I didn't, but the... um, a memorial service for my uncle, um, who lived for years uh, ministering to young people. And his memorial service in the mid-80s but um, was just filled with young people. And young people spoke, and their testimony was great. And then the pastor got up and uh, said, well, now I'm going to present the gospel to you. And I felt like we'd been hearing the gospel for 45 minutes, but now I'm going to present. I, I find pastoral ego very difficult to take. Um, that's why I teach pastors, I guess. But uh, uh, he, he gave the parable of the prodigal son. And his in his frame of reference, my uncle had to be like the prodigal son, as lost as the prodigal son. And, of course, sometime in... Uncle Paul's life, he was like the lost son 
uh, the pastor said, that's true. We're all lost. We're all self-righteous like the older son. We're all lost like the prodigal son. But because of the grace of God, because of maturity, because of Job-like character, you can be like the loving father. And at a memorial service, most of the people may have recognized you not as the prodigal, not as the self-righteous older son. They may recognize you as the loving father. You've made the love of God the Father real in people's lives. So Job shows us what it is to wrestle with God. Um, and there, you know, just number four, we could spend a lot of time. Uh, I find chapter 28 and 29 and 30, 30 and 31 some of the most beautiful scripture in the Bible. One uh, chapter 28 is a poem about wisdom. And it's a celebration of the fact that the fear of God is not going to be found in human technology. It's a really interesting chapter in the light of a smartphone society like we live in. Uh, let me start reading chapter 28, but we'll quickly move. Surely there is a mine for silver, a place for gold, and they refine iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. What's the technology celebrating here? The science of mining. And he's sort of blown away by the technology that they're going deep into the earth for copper and gold and iron. And the fact that I mean, this is the technology of his day. They're discovering these resources and they're using these resources. But is wisdom found there? And you can just update models of technology with any kind of scenario from spaceships to uh, medical technology to whatever is the wisdom of God found there. Verse 23, God understands the way to it and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for man and a way for the lightning of thunder, then he saw it and he declared it, he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. It's not there, not found deep in the earth. It's not found with man's technology. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. It's found with the Lord. And then Job begins to define that good life, the evidence that he would present to a judge. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. And he describes this beautiful life, how God had blessed him and cared for him. Um, and then the reverse, the, the tragedy that um, suffering had caused for him. And now he had become the lowest of the low. And he describes this scenario. He's processing this. And then in chapter 31, he describes, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then, I, how then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on him? Is not calamity for the unrighteous? He describes the ways that he had kept himself righteous and pure. He had made a covenant with his eyes to not to look upon women lustfully. 
And he just goes on describing what he had done in a kind of cool, uh, impassioned way, describing what righteousness, what he did and didn't do when it, come, when it came to faithfulness to God. So we've seen a, a kind of arc in Job's lament from this just lashing out and just great anger, uh, always remaining faithful to wanting to make the case to God, to present his side of it, and then the kind of cool, calm, collected understanding of what righteousness consists of. It's a pattern for what I think is true piety, um, what it is to be spiritually mature. I've done a lot of talking here. I realize that I probably should have opened it up a lot more, um, especially in a day where I'm doing too much talking anyways. Uh, your thoughts, comments on Job? It's amazing to me how much variation there is in all these, you know, there's, what, 42 chapters in the book? Mm-hmm. And it seems like one big, long slog, you know, on the surface. On the surface. When you get into it, there's all, it's, it's looking at the problem from so many different facets. Um, I remember the, one of the biggest challenges I had about three or four years ago when we were rolling out the Bible in a year blog. Well, you got 42 chapters in this book. And even if you go three chapters a day, you're still looking at 14 consecutive days where you're trying to come up with a, 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 a title that will capture yeah, people's right. imaginations and a graphic image. Well, thank God for William Blake because he did this whole series of, of engravings from all these different scenes out of the book of Job. And you know, I, I was able to, to use a lot of that stuff. But it, it really is amazing how, how how buried this whole thing is. I mean, it's I've tried um, several times to see if we couldn't, for the sake of the church, get it to an hour, mm-hmm. an hour presentation on Job, where you had Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far. You edited down. It's really difficult to You're do. Talking a minute a chapter, basically. Well, you can't do it that way. Yeah. You've got to sort of yeah. summarize that yeah. and get the um, a better person than me may be able to pull it off. But that would, you see, the the length is uh, an obstacle to us. You know, today it is. Yeah. Today it is. Um, so we've got to resist that somehow um, to be able to get it. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, it seemed, I don't remember where it is in Job, but at some point he, I don't remember if it's in response to something that God is, when God is saying in, in the latter chapters when he's speaking, did you do this? Did, I don't remember. You can tell me. It's right at the end. Uh-huh. At the end over my mouth. Uh-huh. Does that indicate a change of heart or a change of perspective? I can't remember, but it's just always stuck out with me that there's that there's that moment where he's he at least taking pause, and I just wondered what that was indicative of. He says, "Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Okay, I'm going to shut up. I'm going to shut up and listen." 
you know, that's basically he is. There's a difference between, and this is next week a bit, but there's a difference between a person being humbled before God and a person acknowledging, I am sinful before you. And I think Job definitely, he's, he's been in a graduate school, post-doctoral studies in suffering and God. And he, he realizes now I'm just going to be quiet. Um, and God speaks to him in a profound way, but not in a way that ever explicitly lays out, this is what happened. Satan came to me, and I used you and your righteousness as a witness. Powerful witness, Job. Thank you. Um, he comes as the commanding officer to the Navy SEAL guy and says, I've got another assignment for you. Keep going. I mean, he, he never pampers Job. He never says, oh, I'm you know, kind of sorry for the rough stuff that you've gone through. Um, and from, you know, he basically says, brace yourself like a man. Um, that's, but next week we'll kind of focus on God's response to Job, Job's response to God at the end. He definitely is humbled in this process. Um, and I, because I will want, uh, I am Job's advocate in this. I think he's right from beginning to end. Ignorance is not sinfulness. And he has acquired powerful new understanding and wisdom of God. He's acquired it the hard way, but the only way. And he's acquired it. And um, I, I think God's proud of Job. But he puts on another assignment. Um, but you're quite right in drawing attention to that. Uh, we're going to quit a little early. Let me just say number five. Job's a type pointing forward to Jesus. Uh, you might see the whole book as a commentary on two lines from Christ. The line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that you know the whole book, in a way, is commentary on that line from Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it's exactly how Job feels. And the other line is, not my will, but your will be done. And I think these two lines of Jesus have this whole book, as a way, commentary on those two lines. Not my will. Even Jesus acknowledges the wrestling with his will versus the Father's will and submitting to the Father's will. And Job does that same thing, I think, in a powerful way. Um, all this by way of introduction. This is We're just scratching the surface so that we get into it. Um, Y'all can talk. I'm going to pray, eat a candy bar, and then go into the 11 o'clock service. <laughs> More information than you want to know. Lord God, thank you for blessing us with this powerful book. Help us in the spirit to understand it. And more importantly, to um, allow it to seep into our lives and our response to you and to others. Uh, together we praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.